This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by The Unkillables by Jay Boyette, which is destined to become a classic of zombie vs. caveman literature. Learn more over at jboyette.net. So that's J-B-O-Y-E-T-T dot net. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 240 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Narain Shankar. He's a showrunner on the sci fi channel show The Expanse, and he's also been a writer or producer for many other shows including CSI, Farscape, and The Outer Limits, as well as Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Voyager, and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. The Expanse is based on a series of novels by James S. A. Corey, which is the pen name of authors Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank. We previously interviewed Daniel back in episode 35, and Ty back in episode 113, and we also reviewed the first four episodes of The Expanse back in episode 180, so definitely check those out if you missed them. I also just want to add a special plea here for people to check out The Expanse, which, as you'll hear in this interview, is currently my favorite show on TV. Episode 4, which is called CQB, is one of my favorite TV episodes of all time, and I would strongly encourage everyone to watch at least the first four episodes of the show before making up your mind about it. And if you like what you see, then definitely watch and spread the word about Season 2, which will premiere on the Sci-Fi Channel on February 1st. I also just saw that Sci-Fi is planning to launch a new weekly podcast called The Churn, which will feature Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank discussing every episode of the show, so definitely keep an eye out for that as well. And today's show is brought to you by The Unkillables, a new novel by Jay Boyette. And here's a description. It says, When time travelers escaping a future apocalypse accidentally bring the zombie plague back with them 30,000 years into the past, a Neanderthal must find a way to save his mother from the undead. To do that, he teams up with a woman from the future, who along the way blows his mind by teaching him about love and arithmetic. If you read only one Zombies vs. Cavemen novel this year, make it The Unkillables. So if Zombies vs. Cavemen sounds like your kind of thing, you can get the Kindle version of The Unkillables for just $3.99 over at Amazon.com, and you should also go check out the author's website over at jboyette.net, where you can learn more about his various books and plays, including Ironheart, Rogue Galaxy, and The Little Mermaid, A Horror Story, and also watch some of his short films, including The Closet, The Confession, and The Breakup. And so again, this new book of Cavemen vs. Zombie Mayhem is called The Unkillables, and you can learn more over at jboyette.net, so that's j-b-o-y-e-t-t dot net. Alright, so now let's get to our interview. Alright, so we're here with Narain Shankar. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, so first of all, just give us a bit of your background as a science fiction fan. Were you really into science fiction growing up? I was massively into science fiction growing up. Um... You know, I, I just, I'm old enough to remember the old science fiction book club where they got that thing in the mail, which is like, you know, five hardcover books for 10 cents. That's how they kind of swung you in. And that was like, that's how I got, you know, my, my dose of golden age science fiction, like the Foundation Trilogy, Dune, I mean, everything from, you know, and everything in between. Um, so yeah, and I was a huge Star Trek fan when I was a kid, um, the original series. And, um, so it was, yeah, it's, it's as long as I can remember. It's been something I've been into. And so were you always writing science fiction or did that start at a certain point? Boy, you know, I can always remember like writing stories um, and, and writing just for fun and creative writing. But, uh, you know, specifically science fiction, 
Mm. You know, probably when I got into the entertainment industry. Well, so tell us about, I mean, it's an interesting story because you went off to Cornell, right? And you met Ron Moore. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, I, uh, I started as a, I started at Cornell as a, as a liberal arts student. I was going to be you know, either a medieval studies major or a French literature major. But, you know, as, as I, as, as I got into it, it was, um, you know, the employment prospects in those fields are somewhat limited. And, and I'd always loved science and math and always been, you know, quite good at it. And, so I transferred into the engineering school and, um, I also happened to join a, um, a literary society at Cornell, the Kappa Alpha Society. And it was like a literary society and a social fraternity. Um, and, um, we did a lot of creative writing on a, you know, on a, on a regular basis. Um, and, uh, so I was writing, I was being an engineer. Um, uh, Ron was two years behind me at Cornell. And, um, we became really good friends. Uh, another friend of ours, um, after graduation decided he wanted to get into the entertainment industry. And that guy dragged Ron out. And then several years later, as I was, um, as I was an engineer, um, <clears throat> as I was finishing up my thesis, uh, Ron said, uh, why don't you come on out and, uh, you know, come out to Los Angeles and, uh, become a writer. And I was like, sounds great. And I kind of threw a couple of suitcases in my car and drove out to LA. And I've heard you said that you, you had gotten this PhD in physics and engineering or something, and your family was hoping you would become an engineer or something like that. And uh, your mom, when you drove out to Hollywood, your mom, she, you, you say she didn't tell you this for years, <laughs> but that she, she burst into tears uh, after you yes, were out the door. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, it was very, you know... My parents were extremely supportive of it because they felt it was, you know, is, you know, I, I was indulging a whim and, and I had started college when I was really young. I had just turned, I just turned 16 and, um, and they figured, you know, I had, I'd get this out of my system and then I'd go back to a sensible career like a, like a good Indian son would do. Um, you know, I Indians are typically doctor, lawyer, engineer, business. It's like, and, and careers outside of that were, uh, uh, frowned upon, I guess, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. And so you didn't have a job lined up, right? You were staying, you were just kind of living on Ron Moore's couch for a while. That's correct. Ron Moore gave me his couch. And this was, you know, this was kind of in that pay it forward mode because our, our third friend, you know, he had asked, he told Ron to come out to, to join him out there. And, uh, he, Ron slept on his floor. Um, you know, for the first, <laughs> for the first while he was out there. And then I came out and I think I was on Ron's couch for a couple of months. Um, his girlfriend at the time was not that thrilled with the arrangement, as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> and he was working on Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. He had just, he had just gotten, um, he had just gotten onto the show, I think just after his, that was season three, I guess. Um, and, um, and, you know, there, there was a, Star Trek was unique, um, in the industry at that time and probably still to this day. It, it had what was called an open submission policy, which was the, the, uh, the show would accept fan scripts. You know, if, if you signed a release and that, that Paramount put together, you could send them in. And, and so what that, uh, what that created was like this tons of material that would come in across the transit and every year, you know, people would go through it 
And every season, you know, one or two scripts would get bought or a writer would get found. That's how Ron got his, um, his break to get on staff. Uh, Rene Echevarria, who was on the Next Generation staff, he also did the same thing. Um, and the other way in was, um, through the internship programs that were in town. And, uh, I, so I wrote a spec for Star Trek, sent it in under the open submission policy. Ron got it to the people who were there. They liked it, thought it had potential. And I got an internship through the Writers Guild, um, that got me, you know, uh, to be the WGA intern for like a six week inter- internship. Um, Brandon Braga had come in on a television academy. Um, ATAS, uh, internship. And yeah, so, and ultimately this all led to, uh, staff jobs for me. Um, and, you know, Brandon was on, Renee came in later. I was the last one to join, uh, on Next Generation. Right. So you're a relatively recent college grad and suddenly you're writing for Star Trek. Was that just a dream come true or was it totally amazing? Uh, uh, the joke used to be like, you know, if only they knew how much we would pay to be on this show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're, you're working on a show that you loved as a kid. Um, you're at a television studio, this great, you know, storied historical movie studio in Hollywood. Um, yeah, it was absolutely a dream come true. And, you know, you're making this amazing show and, you know, get to reinvent the thing that you saw and loved as a kid. I mean, yeah, it doesn't really get much better than that. It was, it was awesome. It really was. It was, and it was a great learning experience. We had, um, we had really good bosses who, you know, who gave basically, you know, four first timers. I mean, the, the, the core staff of Next Generation was Ron, Brandon, Renee, and myself at the end. Uh, Joe Minoski was there as well. He was the more experienced hand, but he was more of a, became more of a consultant towards the end. Um, but, um, for, for the four of us, it was all of our first job in the business. And we had bosses that let us, you know, argue and have spirited debates and try new things and, um, and, and were very nurturing and, and, and created a, actually a really, really good environment in which to learn and, and kind of get your footing in the business. Um, and I think that all of us, you know, carried that carried that forward into, into other shows over the years because those first experiences can be incredibly formative. It's like if you're with bad people and you learn bad habits, you tend to make, you know, you tend to do that, um, as you go ahead. And, and, uh, our, our staff was, um, there was a lot of spirited debate, but, uh, our, our direct boss, uh, Jerry Taylor, who was our supervising producer and then, Kelly P, an executive producer on the various Star Treks after Next Gen, was she, she liked to quote Mike Nichols, which was "Best idea wins," and that was really, you know, the that was really, you know, the the, the touchstone for for everything that we did is that you could argue, you could you could yell at each other. We got, you know, had a lot of bright people with a lot of strong ideas, um, but at the end of the day, we were all trying to make the show better, and um, yeah, so. It was a it was a great environment, really, really great environment to work. I mean, I have heard Ron Moore say though that he was he got sort of frustrated with all the rules. There was all there were all these rules for the Star Trek universe that they couldn't that you had to follow. Oh, that's yeah. I mean, that's a totally separate thing. I, I was talking more about process. Um, in terms of the creative strictures 
of the Star Trek The Next Generation universe, that was tough because there was a lot of things you could do and couldn't do. And, you know, it, it, it was something that we fought against quite often. And, you know, in the latter seasons of the show, you see it kind of changing a little bit, but still it was, you know, it was, it, it wasn't a, a, a massive dramatic shift. I mean, you had people who couldn't lie because lying is bad. You couldn't, you, they, they wouldn't get drunk because, you know, that's not good. And it's like, like, it was, everybody was too good. Everybody was too noble. Everybody was a little too pure. Um, and, and I think that that's, you know, ultimately why the, why the show can feel at times, um, where you're watching just a bunch of very perfect people, um, help other people solve their problems. And, and so that's, you know, that's what Star Trek was at that time. Um, it was, you know, it was a, a reaction to the original series and Gene Roddenberry had wanted, you know, the baser instincts of humanity kind of worked out. Um, and, and gotten out of our systems by the time we got to the world of next generation. Um, dramatically, it's a less interesting place to be. Ron, I gather that Ron wrote a whole manifesto about how, what he would do differently. Um, which is going to come oh, back for, for Galactica. Well, that, that, yeah, that, that this experience on Star Trek inspired him to write this manifesto of like how yeah. Star mm-hmm. Trek could be how how he would do it differently if uh, if he were in charge yeah absolutely I'm, I'm sure that's you know very much was a a, a part of uh, uh i'm sure that was a huge part of what prompted him to do that um as i recall though i think that he wrote he wrote i think he wrote that manifesto after the galactica miniseries had been shot as they were contemplating going to series with it hmm, interesting so so did you what was going what what was going on with you when Ron was getting the Battlestar Galactica reboot going? Um I was on CSI. I mean you know, I was uh um I think that's right. That would have been about what year? About 2002 2003. 2003 like it aired, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was on CSI. Um I I'd been brought on there as um oh, the first like right at, right at the end of season 2 um and and I was there uh, running the show with uh, Carol Mendelson for eight years. I thought it was interesting because I just watched your um, episode of Space Oddity this morning. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. <laughs> it was it was it was really fun. Could you talk about how that came about? Yeah, um, we had always wanted to do a show set at like a a Star Trek convention or like a sci fi convention, and um, actually after Battlestar Galactica was had ended, I hired. Um, David Weddle and Bradley Thompson, um, who had written on Galactica and who had actually come out of the Deep Space Nine Star Trek. I had known the, I'd known them in various capacities for, you know, many, many years and I liked them very much. And so I brought them onto CSI and that was an episode that, that, you know, we started talking about doing and we ended up writing it together. And it was really, it was really one of my favorites. Um, there's an interesting story about it actually. Is because initially, when when we conceived it, what I wanted to do was use clips from old Star Trek episodes, and um, and at the time they were J.J. Abrams was doing the the first of the new Star Trek movies, and and so there was this whole weird embargo 
that was going on with like doing anything about Star Trek. And, and Paramount Television and Paramount Film Studios have this very odd kind of, um, split between them. And, and it's all very complicated, but, but I kept, I kept asking to permission to get the original series, um, clips to be used in the show and i kept getting shut down and finally went up all the way to the chief counsel at viacom and we were on a phone call with like everyone i was like what is going on here and there was apparently some agreement that they had made with jj abrams company um to to not use anything until the new movie was released and so at the end of the day we were they, they told us we couldn't use any clips from the original series and so we ended up creating a show um, in the show and sort of, you know, riffing on, on episodes of Star Trek and each one of those had to like pass like legal muster to like not be too close. But anybody who loves the original series knows which episodes we're talking about. So <laughs> it's like, um, um, anyway, so it was, uh, it, it was, uh, it's just really one of my favorites of, of, uh, of, of my run at CSI and even, even, better was I went to this thing at the Writers Guild one night and Dorothy Fontana was there and she said and we met and, and she was like I saw that episode of CSI I loved it and we had this whole long conversation and I was like oh my god you wrote Journey to Babel it was like <laughs> it was it was a real it was a nice fan moment for for me um so yeah that was a fun episode when it's such a funny premise because the premise basically is that there's a, a ron moore type um showrunner who's going to reboot this star trek type show but make it all dark oh, yes. and edgy yep and the fans uh and he gets murdered well, and and did, it could be any of the fans who did it right did you yeah but did you see ron's cameo yeah yeah no, i saw, I, saw that, I got yeah. i got ron his i got ron his sad card man <laughs> <laughs> i i asked him to do it and, and uh um uh, Grace Park got a, has a cameo in there. I saw her, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's like, it was really, really fun. And Ron was actually good. He nailed the line. <laughs> you suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so for listeners, he, Ron Moore plays the random fan in the audience, screaming uh, angrily yeah, at this it's, director. Um, it's great. It's like they, they, the, the guy unveils his new dark, edgy vision of the show, and, and the crowd is simply aghast. And Ron's the one who speaks up first and says, you suck. And then the crowd goes crazy. <laughs> Well, because I, I heard it was inspired by an actual thing, you know, when Ron rebooted Battlestar Galactica, he went to Galacticon or something and showed them footage from his new show and they all hated it. They thought Starbucks should be a man and they, they're like, where's Daggett and all this stuff? And and he's like, well, that is, this is that is 100 percent correct. <laughs> that is exactly what it was based on. Yeah. It's just really funny. Okay. And I mean, you mentioned you worked on um, Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Voyager. You worked on a whole bunch of shows that unfortunately we don't have time to go into all of them. But I did want to really ask you, you worked on The Outer Limits, which is the show I was mm -hmm. really, really into in college. And I saw that you worked on an episode with Harlan Ellison and A.E. Van Vogt. I was just curious mm -hmm. uh, what that was like. That was uh, one of my favorites, actually. Um, uh, the Outer Limits had, you know, it's, it was an anthology series. It was a, a remake of the of the classic 60s. Um, series. Um, and what we wanted to do was every year we were trying to do like a classic sci-fi story doing an adaptation of it. And, um, you know, one of the ones we had talked about was, was a, a very famous story called The Human Operators by Harlan Elson, Ava, and, and, um, and, you know, 
for a number of reasons, one of which um, was that A, Van Vogt was very ill, and um, Harlan wanted to get, you know, to, to get uh, health coverage under the guild, you know, rules by getting an option. And so he, he did a very kind thing. And so he allowed the story to be optioned. And, and, you know, I had read as a kid, like the famous, you know, hellacious relationships Harlan had had with, you know, various adaptations of his work from City on the Edge of Forever to Star Lost to all of the things that he had done. And so I, I had loved his stuff forever. Of course. So, you know, and, and I wanted to write this story. And so I get on the phone with him for the first time after we're going to do this. And and I, and literally the first thing I said to him was, I said, I said, Mr. Ellison, I just want you to know I'm far more interested at the end of the day with this script, having more of your words on paper than mine. And there was like a silence at the other end of it. He goes, kid, we're going to get along great. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, and it was, it was actually a tremendous collaboration. And I think that once I had, had, had expressed to him that I really was interested in honoring the work, it, it actually turned out that he was much more flexible than than I had expected him to be or, or imagined because, like, I wrote a script and he goes, kid, you were too faithful to the material, and here's what I think you should change. And so it ended up being a, just a really, really fun collaboration. Um, and, uh, yeah, it won, it won a WGC award, I believe, that year, and... Um, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was one of my absolute all-time favorites. So were you just talking to him over the phone, or did you ever meet him face-to-face? Oh, I've met him many, many times. Um, uh, we were up in Vancouver, so that particular part of the process was done over the phone, but I met him subsequently, and, you know, we've had lunches together and, and all of that stuff. So he's, um, uh, <laughs> he's, still, he's still Harlan. <laughs> I mean, do you have any crazy Harlan Ellison stories, or has it, has it always I, been? I don't. He he has more than enough of his own to be <laughs> the band. He doesn't need any of mine. Um, but uh, yeah, he's 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 just you know he, he's incredibly you know uh, he's a real giant in the business. I, I'm I was actually probably even more fond of his nonfiction than I was of his fiction. I just thought he was he's a brilliant essayist, and you know, um, anyways, it was it was a real real honor and a pleasure to to work with him in that capacity. And then I also really wanted to ask you, you worked on Farscape. Well, could you talk I about did. what your uh, involvement with that was like? Um, yeah, I, I was on Farscape in season two. Um, uh, that was a really, really fun show. Um, you know, I think it was a little ahead of its time uh, in terms of, you know, how, how the stories were told, uh, you know, um, David Kemper, uh, was, was the, was the showrunner. Um, we shot everything down in Sydney and, and he brought me on and, you know, that, that show real and Rockman Band created it, but David was really, I think, the, the heart and soul of it in so many ways. He just had a magnificently crazy and operatic sensibility and just an incre- just an awesome imagination. And, um, and it was, it was unusual and beautiful and, and strange. It didn't always work. But it was certainly, <laughs> it was certainly, um, an, a, a, just a, a fascinating, interesting group of people. Um, and, and just stylistically, it was, it was quite beautiful as well. Yeah. I was a big fan of that show and it got canceled very suddenly. I guess you were, you were gone by that point. 
Yeah, I mean, the, I was there for one season. It was um, I, I, at that point I had been. See, I had lived up in Vancouver for three years doing the Outer Limits, and then I moved to Sydney for a year doing Farscape. And you know, at that time, science fiction was much more of a ghetto than it is today. And um, and having been out of Los Angeles for such a long time, I kind of felt like I was dropping off the map a little bit on the in the entertainment business. So I wanted to come back. Um, I think Farscape went. Did it go four seasons? I think it did. Yeah. And then there was like a movie. Yeah. It. You know it. Again, I think it was just a little bit ahead of the curve and ahead of its time. Um, you know, I, that's the kind of show that today I think would have a tremendously strong cult following. Um, and at that time, that was also, it was, it was the most expensive show that sci-fi, the sci-fi channel had ever done. Um, they were making, they were sort of all over the place and, and trying to find an identity, not sure they were making some transition between you know, being the place where you could watch reruns of the X-Files and then, you know, and trying to do original programming, but also wanting to do ghost hunters. And there's a, there's a huge sort of like a, it was just, they couldn't quite find their identity. And then they found Battlestar Galactica, but then they sort of programmed against it for a long time. So they were in that weird transitional phase. And, um, yeah, I think, I think had it been under a different regime in a different time, it might have been, might have lasted quite a bit longer. Yeah, I mean, Farscape and Firefly are the two shows that just among my friends, everyone's like, oh, how could they cancel that? Yeah, I mean, and it's just economics, I think. They just, and these, these places just didn't quite know what they wanted to be in terms of programming entities. And it's just, you know, so many things have to go right to get a hit. You just, you know, and, and so many of them are totally beyond your control, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Well, so speaking of the sci-fi channel, you're doing the expanse now on sci-fi. And so just tell us about kind of what was your first inkling that this expanse thing was going to be a show? Um, well, I, I was brought into it was sort of like the last element brought into it because they had developed a pilot script with Alcon television. They'd actually written it in house and they took it out to the, the marketplace. Um, Mark Ferguson, Hawk Osby, who had written children of men and Iron Man future guys, um, they, they had, you know, really, you know, they really liked the books. And so they wrote this pilot and then they needed somebody to run it. And, and I had actually worked with Sharon Hall, who was the president of Alcon Television when she was at Sony. And she thought I would be a, a good fit, uh, for the material. And so I came in and met with everybody and really hit it off with Mark and Hawk. And, um, the funny thing was after, after they, they hired me, um, Actually, I'm gonna back that up. Um, there are two things that were funny. <laughs> one, one was when I originally got the material, my agent said, Hey, I would like you to look at this, the script. And, and I said, and they said, um, it, it's from the sci-fi channel. And I literally just hit trash in my email. <laughs> so like, I was like, I, cause I, I hadn't worked at sci-fi channel since Farscape. And I, and I had, I had watched the network. They made Battlestar Galactica, a show that I thought was a masterpiece. And for like the next, you know, whatever years, they just disavowed it. They didn't, they didn't, they wanted to pretend it didn't exist. They wanted to program against it. They just, it just seemed like they just were not interested in doing anything. And every year I would get material from them. And every year I tell my agents, I go, I hate this. I'm not doing this. And so when the, the email comes in with the script, I go, this is just terrible. And like three weeks later, my agents say, please read this script. I really think you should. 
And I scrolled to the bottom, and that's when I, I saw that, oh, it was written by the guys who wrote Children of Men, a movie that I think is terrific. And I said, okay, I'll give this a shot. And I read it, and I go, they're making this show? Because it was total, it was like, it was grown up, it was smart, it was interesting. And, and that's actually what got the ball rolling. Um, but, um, the second funny thing was after they hired me to run it, uh, Sharon Hall tells me, she goes, and by the way, the uh, book authors are going to be in your writing staff with you. And I was like, wow, you really think that's a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, uh, it turned out it was a really good idea. And, and they were very open to, to truly adapting the material. Um, and, and it's been, it's been a terrific experience, uh, ever since. So I know you, you, you mentioned you have the scientific background and you were the science, a science consultant for Next Generation. Was that a, how much of a factor was that in them wanting you on this show? You know, it was such a long time ago. I don't even think that they, they probably wouldn't even have known it. I mean, you know, I, that was, um, I mean, I mean, my goodness, that's probably what, 25 years ago. Um, you know, Sharon, Sharon knew me as, as the showrunner CSI. You know, she didn't, she didn't know me as the Star Trek guy. Um, but, you know, I think, I, and, you know, they met plenty of people, I think, for the, for the job. The, the, the place where the science background came in, I think, in our favor was, I think a lot of people might have adapted the material differently. Because one of the things that The Expanse does is it tries to show, you know, at least a semi-realistic portrayal of of what it might be like to live in space and be in, you know, in ships that are under thrust and all of the gravity effects, etc. I, I think a lot of people might have just tried to ignore them and thought those weren't important. I, my immediate instinct was to embrace them because what I felt was interesting was I had never seen a show try to do this. where where it was, it was the opportunity to make space a character. And it's something that's constantly glossed over or just kind of tossed out in the trash because people don't want to deal with wire work and weightlessness and, and worrying about thrust and gravity and all of these things because they don't feel like, like science fiction is, is about that. They feel it's like it's, it's about metaphors. They feel like it's, it's about, um, you know, and now uh, great allegories of stories like it can be about all of those things. But if you're trying to do a show of this nature, I, I think it would have been running away from what makes the expanse actually unique and special. And so I, I think that my science background may have given me an ability to appreciate it in a little different way than many other people might have. Um, because it's something that, that I think is a real, interesting signature element of the show that really distinguishes it from other science fiction that's been done. Yeah, I just think it's so cool. I mean, in the show, the spaceships fire their thrusters to get going, and then when it's time to slow down, they swing the whole ship around and fire the thrusters in the opposite direction to slow down, and which is how it would really work. And it's just so striking that it's never or rarely been done before in movies and TV, and it's just so cool to see that you're doing that like that. Well, you know, I, one of the only people who got it right was Stanley Kubrick. I mean, you know, if, if you watch 2001, he, he kind of got it right. And, and boy, does that movie hold up. It was made in 1968, I think. Um, but 
you know, for most people, you know, the space battles are just, they're just rehashes of, you know, World War II fighter engagements in the Pacific. That's all they are. And that's fine if, if they want to be that kind of a fantasy. But I find great beauty in the way the ships move. Um, and in our show, they're, you know, flipping a ship around, turning off the grab, you know, turning off the thrusters, flipping it around, turning it on to break and, and that being difficult and scary and tough. Um, it's, it's majestic watching these things move. It's kind of beautiful watching them twist around and, and continue their momentum around the center of mass while the maneuvering thrusters roll. It's just, you just don't see it. And, and, you know, we're, we're lucky to be at a time when the visual effects side of things, and, and that's Bob Monroe's our visual effects supervisor and his team. They do such a beautiful job of it. And, and it really does give the show a completely different, you know, visual aesthetic, um, in, in the science fiction genre that I, I, I just, I, I love watching it. It's, it's just something you kind of go, wow, that just looks amazing. Um, and we, we push, you know, we push the situations where we can really highlight that as much as we possibly can. So when the like in the scene where Miller is kind of spinning the map around, is that just something an artist came up with, or did it, someone actually sit down and calculate all those trajectories and do the math and all that kind of stuff? Um, there's a lot of realism in it. You're talking about when he's when he's in his apartment and he's like yeah. spinning the, the Star Trek around. Yeah, there's a lot of real stuff in it, but you know that was partially um, just an amazing actor, Thomas Jane, who really was doing certain things. And then the artists being able to, to match their animations to his, his movements. Um, you know, I, I can't say with a hundred percent certainty that all of the orbits and trajectories and, 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 you know, and, and distances are all correct. Um, but they're certainly believable. Um, and, and we strive for accuracy as much as possible in situations like that. Right. And so one of the episodes where all the gravity stuff comes to the fore the most is episode four. It's called CQB. And you're actually credited as the writer on that episode. I, I just have to say, it's, I think it's one of my favorite TV episodes I've ever seen in my life. I, I love <laughs> well, it so you. much. Thank you. It, um, was, it, was, it was really fun. It's one of probably the most fun scripts I've ever written. Um, and it was actually, I, I, had, I had read that scene in the first book of The Expanse Leviathan Wakes. And that's actually what I do is like, I really want to do this show because I wanted to put that scene on film and I knew we could do it. Um, where Shed's head gets blown off. Um, cause I'd never seen anything like that. Um, or read anything like that or seen anything close to it in a science fiction show. And, um, I, I was really, I was really pleased with the way that turned out. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you kind of called dibs on that scene. You're like, I got this one. I did. I totally did. It's like, it's sort of like the boss's prerogative. <laughs> I go, I'm, I'm writing this episode. And also it was, you know, I, I wanted to do, a big battle episode. You know, we had the first four episodes of the show. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a slow burn in, in, in terms of storytelling. Um, the beginning of season one, you know, we don't even get, you know, to a, you know, a classic standing set, which is the Rossi until the end of episode four. And so, you know, what we wanted to do was build up to a big moment in episode four and have a gigantic battle. And so it's like, what's fun about that episode for me is it just doesn't stop. 
You know, like each, each phase of it, just like you go, wait, what? There's more and there's more and there's more and there's more. And, um, and it has, uh, I was real pleased with the way that that whole thing kind of came out. But, um, yeah, that was, that was one of the, the highlights of season one. Yeah. And I just, I don't want to spoil it too much for people who haven't seen it yet, but just some, some of the ways that the action and the violence intersects with the zero gravity is just mm-hmm. really like striking and stuff you just, just don't see in TV science fiction. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole last sequence when they're trying to get to the, to the Tachi, um, with Holden and Naomi on that, on that causeway, that was, you know, again, it's like how he gets out of the problem is just understanding how things in space work. And when you really kind of like dissect the scene, it's like they're running, the gravity goes out, they go off (laughs) into space, they're screwed. And it's just like he uses conservation of momentum to get himself back down to the deck. And um, it's just kind of a, again, you don't really see that that often. I mean, do you think part of the reason you don't see it is because it's just hard to execute? I mean, how hard is it to execute that kind of zero gravity stuff? It's hard to execute because it's wire work and choreography and virtual sets and a lot of green screen. And, you know, uh, from from a physical production standpoint, it's demanding. But it's also it's also it's hard to understand. And, you know, not. You don't have to have a PhD in physics to understand it, but you do have to understand how science works. And we have these conversations in our room a lot because, you know, Ty Frank, Daniel Abraham, they know a lot about science. And, you know, Ty in particular is really, you know, he really understands and he's thought very deeply about the real physics of how stations and ships and, you know, everything works. Um, That's my own, you know, natural background, but it's not the background of anybody else in that room. And, and what's nice about the show is, you know, we have, we have writers, Robin Veith is from Mad Men, Dan Nowak is from The Killing, Mark and Hawker, you know, Children of Men, they've written, they're not science fiction guys necessarily, even though they wrote Iron Man. But, you know, it's that combination of all of these human elements, all of these science elements, and everybody, you know, there, there's pieces of everybody in every single script. And, and so it's, a, it's a nice balance and a nice combination of people. Because the expense is all of those things. It's like the science would be boring if it didn't have human beings, you know, at the center of it. And, you know, those human beings would be perhaps, you know, less in less interesting situations if we ignored some of this, the realities of life in space. So nicely, you know, in, in, the, in the best case scenario, all of those things work together. And at the end of the day, you have a, a more interesting and a more unique show than you might have had otherwise. Yeah, well, so you mentioned that you were at first you were a little bit apprehensive about having Ty and Daniel in the room, but obviously they've proven to be this tremendous resource. Can you say sort of how you think the show might have turned out differently if they hadn't been so directly involved? Um, absolutely. Um, you know what? The, the thing about the Expanse is it's a very, very deep um, universe that, that Ty and Daniel have created, and they thought about it really, really extensively. It's like we were. You know, in the process of, of going through season one, and we came on this story and this character of Fred Johnson, and I go, well, I don't understand. What, is, what did he do? What, why, are, why are people mad at him? And, and it's like, well, he seems to have this story. It's like, because it's hinted at in the book, you know, it's not in, in Leviathan Wakes. And then, and then Ty and Daniel go, oh, well, it's all about this stuff. And, and, and they spin out this whole story. And like, I'm like, what the fuck? What are you talking about? None of that's in the book. <laughs> and he goes, well, they go, no, no, that's in the novella. It's called The Butcher of Anderson Station. 
And I go, there's novellas? And they go, yeah, we wrote a bunch of these novellas. And I go, and I read the novella. And I go, this is better than the book, guys. It's like, <laughs> and, and what, but, but what, what we realized, what I realized was that these guys had created a, a, you know, these novels, at least the, the, the first couple, which were very, I think they're, they're much more plot focused. And they had s- supported them with these highly character focused novellas. They're, they're, they're just kind of like, they're like one act plays, really. Um, and so what I, what I thought would be a really interesting way to adapt the show, the, the whole works of the expanse was to combine those things. And so in the course of our first couple seasons, we have borrowed from the novellas. We've incorporated the stories into our stories to the effect that I think we've really been able to deepen the characters in a way that's very, very true to the, the totality of the work. Um, but, but also true to the, to the overall f- plot framework of the novels. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite pleased with the way that that has all worked together and we, we're continuing to do it. Um, you know, this, this coming season two, um, we, we pulled some material from, uh, The Vital Abyss, uh, which is their new novella. And we, we, uh, we did an episode that, that adapts, um, the story Drive, which is about Solomon Epstein and, and the creator of the Epstein Drive, which enabled colonization in the world of the expanse. So we're telling stories in some kind of unusual ways. Um, and it's actually, you know, none of that would have happened if Ty and Daniel hadn't been in the room because, you know, and also there's things, I mean, smaller things too. Like I go like, wow, you know, it'd be really interesting to, to like, you know, highlight some element of Belcher culture, like, but what can we do? And then Ty and Daniel go, oh, we could have like a slingshot club. And I'm like, what's that? And they go, oh, it's all this. And then they suddenly <laughs> got a story, you know, and that ended up in episode four. So that's, you know, and, and beyond that, you know, and they're, you know, they're writing scripts, you know, they wrote episode seven, season one, they wrote two episodes in season two. So I love the fact that we have the people who created this world who are here allowing us to change and adapt their work into a different medium. And I understand that that's a different thing. Um, but having them there means we don't break anything because I don't believe in there. There are many people who like when they, when they get something to adapt, they go, well, we'll just throw all that shit out about the book. <laughs> it's like, I'm not that guy. I like to adapt the work. There's a reason people like it. And so I think the job on my end of things is, is to understand, you know, what you're actually working with and to stay true to the spirit of that material. And hopefully you get to deepen it and enrich it um, and do other things with it just because it's in a different form. We have changed chronology of events. We have changed the reason why people do things very differently in the book. But we still, we don't always go A to B to C, but we always get from A to C. You know, it's just like, so it's, um, and that's kind of the way we've been, been moving along. Uh, it seems to be working so far. Hmm. Now, so as a showrunner, are you equally involved in everything, every aspect of the show? Or are there any areas that you focus on more than others? No, I'm, I'm, 
I'm involved in every single aspect of the show. <laughs> it's like there's nothing, there's nothing that does not cross my plate. Are you are you credited as a writer for any of the season two episodes? Yeah, I mean we we, we spread them out over the the season. I wrote episode six and I wrote uh, co-wrote episode thirteen. Um, but yeah, we have a staff of it's um, me, Mark and Hawk, Ty and Daniel, Rob and Dan, uh, Georgia Lee. Um, and then a new writer this year, Howie Lambert. And yeah, that's our staff. But it's, you know, it's only, you know, episodes, season one was 10 episodes. Season two is 13. And there's small cable orders, but we kind of go in rotation. So without giving spoilers, is there anything in season two that you're particularly uh, excited for people to see? Um, well, let's see. Gotta be care- really careful about spoilers. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that the return to Eros, um, that is kind of the first big movement of season two is pretty remarkable. Um, I don't think people are going to see much like it. Uh, and then we've got a, you know, the second half of the season is pretty amazing too. Um, as we start getting into, um, the events of Caliban's War, which is the second book in the series. So do you follow uh, online, like, reviews and uh, message boards and stuff like that? Do you follow or do you get fan mail, thing, things like that? Um, you know, I, people send stuff to me. I, 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 I'm not, like, I, I don't really have a big presence online because, like, I get – if there's too many voices telling me what they like and don't like, it actually confuses me a little bit <laughs> because at the end of the day, I kind of feel like I, I have to make what I think is good. And, and, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear people's reactions, but it, it's just sort of like, you're not going to get 10 people to agree on anything, you know, with stuff like this. And, and that, that's from, you know, that's every science fiction show I've ever been on has been the same thing. But, you know, I, I've been really pleased as, as people have passed along, um, you know, uh, the various reviews and, and, and fan responses. It definitely seems like we're hitting a chord. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I've read, I've read some very, very smart, thoughtful reviews of the material that really do seem to understand what we're doing. So that's been quite gratifying. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I really admire most about the show is that it always prioritizes realism over having anything artificial that would explain things to the audience. So a character never like explains how the technology works or anything if that's if they wouldn't have any logical reason to do that. Well, Mark Fergus always said, I, I borrowed this story from him a couple of times. It's like, you don't sit in a car and go, my, what a terrifically impressive internal combustion engine this thing has. You just fucking drive it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, okay. So it's part of your world. It's like, you don't talk about the thing, you know, and, and that's where we, we, we kind of go with, you know, uncommented technology. It's like, you know, Ty would tell this story about, you know, people go, well, where's all the artificial intelligence and robots? And he goes, they're all over the place. You know, it's like, how do you think those guns come out of the ship? You know, how do, the, how do you think? It's like, it's just that we don't talk about it. And what we've done, you know, in a visual sense is, like, if you if you really watch carefully, like, when the Rossi is like, um, like, when it's escaping from the Doniger, the Tachi, it's like, and it's smashing into things. If you watch, when the guns get close to something, they, they, they retract back into the ship. Like they duck. 
the the guns are like they have collision avoidance sort of built into their mechanism. We don't talk about it, but you see that happening. It's like there's intelligence to things. There's all sorts of stuff around it. There's like there's you know when the guns fire, they they there are like retro. Um, there's like a there's a there's a retro that fires on the other side so that the ship's momentum isn't changed. There's all sorts of little like things like that's all like artificial intelligence and robotics. We just don't talk about it. Right. Well, I mean, like there's this scene in season one where um, Naomi picks up kind of a handful of sand and lets it spill through her fingers, and she can tell from the way it falls what side of the mm-hmm. station they're on. And yeah. I honestly, I honestly didn't get that. I just heard you explain it, but I was like, oh, that's so cool. But yeah, it, it, it's it's just, but it's it's like the effect is she picks up some some dust and she drops it and she sees it spiral. So it's like if you know if you understand how something is moving, the Coriolis deflection is going to be one way or the other. So understanding where you are in the station relative to the spin, that's a way you could tell, you know. But we don't really explain it. <laughs> We just see her. We just see her. You know, it's like, it's one of those like classic old scenes from a Western where, you know, the native, the native, the Indian tracker with them, sorry, the native American tracker would like, you know, look at the ground and go, they went that way. They never really explained how we knew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just sees a broken twig. Okay. Great. <laughs> I guess that means there were six of them. <laughs> well, no, and I, I really like, I mean, I would rather not understand it than have her give some ridiculous, you know, like for the audience explanation. Yeah, I think people are very, you know, they're very sophisticated in how they uh, absorb this sort of thing because it's, um, you know, and as long as you give them a little hint that the character is seeing something, and if the character says what it means, then they're willing to go with it. And that's that's what I mean about she drops the dust and it spirals. It's like that's an that's something that seems unusual. It should drop straight down. We show the dust spiraling, and she says it means something. Then I go, okay, she knows what she's talking about. This must be one of those cool space things. And if you care about it, you'll understand it a little bit more deeply. But it doesn't require you to to, to explain that to anybody. Um, there's, you know, there's a there's a show that was on. I think when our first season was on, it was a sci. It's like a network sci-fi show, and there's a whole scene about like. A drone taking garbage out of the house and putting it by the curtain. It's like, and they just, it's just like going on forever. And the whole scene seems to be like, look how cool this is. It's like, it's the least interesting thing possible. And it shouldn't even exist (laughs) as part of the scene, but it's like the whole thing is done for it. And it's not, I, I just don't think that that's, you know, what that does is, is it, I think that sort of approach infantilizes the genre because what you're telling the audience when you show people that is that it isn't really about the people. It isn't really about drama. It isn't about the things that we all think about, which, you know, which are, which are elevated, um, dramatic television. It's just about techno porn and, you know, look at this cool gizmo. And that's when things get kind of silly. Um, we try to avoid that. Right. And I think it gives it a lot more rewatchability too if there's if you don't understand everything the first time around but if you watch it a couple times and all these things start clicking into place and you're like oh now Mm -hmm. i get that it's it's there's a unique kind of pleasure to that yeah i think so too um do you it was sort of this is it shows interesting too because it's a science fiction show set in outer space and for 
ever since Battlestar Galactica, really, there have not been many science fiction shows set in outer space. I mean, the Sci-Fi Channel did a couple of them recently. We talked about Killjoys and Dark Matter on this show. But it's just so encouraging to me to see science fiction set in outer space back on television. And Yeah, Yeah, I I agree. Go straight ahead. I I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about, is this Um, going to... I don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, traditionally, it's been a tough genre to crack for people because it's, you know, there's some, I don't know, there's something about it. It, it seems to, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's an intimidation factor. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Um, I, I don't know. I, I can't account for it because and I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I like the genre. So, you know, but maybe, maybe I'll say this. The shows that seem to succeed the most are shows where it's not about the spaceships. Galactica is not about the spaceships. The original Star Trek was not about the spaceships. The Expanse is not about the spaceships. And, and I think that when you're, when you're into sort of the G wizardry, you know, you know, kind of cheesy space opera stuff, um, that, that has often been out there. Um, I think that's like kind of, you know, we're back to the, the argument about it just seems a little juvenile. And, and our show may be many things, but it's certainly it's not juvenile. Right. But I am very committed to the idea of science fiction as something that's going to get people thinking about the future and think about how do we get, how do we settle the solar system, et cetera. And I think just think it's oh, yeah. good, good to have stories like that. You know, you can get characters, oh, like, you can get characters absolutely. anywhere, you know. But- absolutely. Well, I mean, look. You know, one of the things that we talked about, but, but, you know, like, if I would turn the question back on you, it's like, what do you, what do you think the expanse is about? I mean, and, and there's no right answer to the question, but, but when you're watching it, what do you think like the, the, the big deep themes of the show are? I'm curious. Well, I mean, I think it's about how, in, in a way, it's almost, it's almost this sort of the reaction to Star Trek as well. The idea that futuristic technology is not going to solve human problems for us uh mm-hmm. these are problems we're going to have to work out uh you know as humans uh, mm-hmm. and there's not going to be a technological quick fix for them mm-hmm. yeah that we sort of take our problems with us as we, we expand out into the universe the technology technology doesn't isn't the only thing that solves them um you know yeah and, and you know there's that's absolutely part of the show um you know there's also things like you know, uh, that it, that it's the nature of human beings to identify people who look different or talk different or have a different culture as other than you. And when that happens, that's when wars occur. Um, and so even though we've got this multicultural polyglot, you know, expansion into the human system, earthers are different from Martians who are different from Belters. It's like we've tribalized once again, and we're already at each other's throats again. And then that's a, you know, a, a sad, um, state of human nature. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that when you're dealing with things like that and you transpose them into space and you add all these other things, I think that you have the, the ability to have some very, um, interesting storytelling, uh, that just happens to be set in space. Well, let me say too, though, about the tribalism, because I think it's true that tribalism persists, 
But the more humanity spreads out into the galaxy, the more you see how fluid those tribes are. And, you know, yeah, now we have Earth versus Mars, but America versus Mexico has ceased to have any relevance whatsoever, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you're right. They're fluid, but they're persistent. It's just like what it's what you define as a tribe has changed. And so, unfortunately, the, the core of tribalism has remained the same. That that is a, that is definitely a big theme in the expanse, without question. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're almost pretty much out of time. Um, I just thought this was cool. I just want to mention this that the Tycho station from the expanse was featured on the cover of Physics Today. I know. I was. I I sent the cover, uh, an image of the cover, to my thesis advisor at Cornell, <laughs> and he was so so pleased. <laughs> <laughs> That's like one of one of one of his grad students made the cover of physics today. Sweet. <laughs> it's apparently the first time they featured an image from science fiction on the cover since 1974. So that's really uh, I didn't yeah. know that. No kidding. That's awesome. Well, we're doing a um, we're doing a Q and A panel at Caltech on Wednesday um, because there's so many fans there, and it's like it's one of those hilarious moments for me. Which is because like the last time I was at Caltech, no lie, was to for a job interview at JPL in which I was presenting my graduate research. Um, in addition to doing like some interviews and sit downs with people. So that's the last time I was at Caltech. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, so I just want to just, I mean, say in closing here that. Uh, I just love this show. I mean, I was telling my my girlfriend after I finished, I, I watched the first four episodes of season two, and I was uh-huh. telling her after I watched them, like, I'm just so proud that something like this exists and so happy to be involved in science fiction and be able to talk about something that takes it this seriously and is of this high quality and obviously that the people making it care about it so much. Oh, thank and, you so much. That's uh, That's awesome to hear. Yeah, and so I think I'm officially declaring this my favorite show on TV. I mean, it was Black Mirror. But I think that after, now that we're getting into season two of The Expanse, I think I'm actually more interested in finding, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more um, like emotionally invested in seeing more of this than Black Mirror at the moment. And so that's... Wait, wait till you see episode five. Yeah. <laughs> wait till you see episode five. Have you read the books? Uh, I read, I read book four because I interviewed Ty about it when it came out. Uh-huh. And I read part of book one when I, when we okay. talked about that sec, those, the first four episodes of, um, season one, but I have not, mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to happen, um, you know, until book four. So, um, and, uh, well, oh, okay, cool. Well, I'm, I'm so, I'm so glad and, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you're, you're into season two. Those first four episodes, I'm, I'm, I think are pretty cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. The um, the the character of Cortazar was the one I was telling you about that we pulled from the Vital Abyss. Um, that's the uh, the other novella. So he's not, you know, he's not in Caliban. He's not in and Bobby, like the whole Bobby Marine story, the Martian Marines. The um, the you you actually meet them in the very beginning of the second novel. In Caliban's work, but we are backing them up in time. Um, so you're meeting them much earlier. So anyways, there's a lot of good stuff coming in season two. I think you're going to get a real kick out of it. Well, yeah, when we talked about season one, um, two of the people had read all the books and they were saying they were uh-huh. just looking so forward to seeing Bobby Draper. Uh-huh. She's the best character yep. ever. And I can certainly... Well, 
<laughs> You're, uh, yeah, I know. We're not, we're not going to be keeping anybody waiting, too. I think she's in the first, like, one second of the show. So. <laughs> um, all right, cool. Well, this is really fun, man. Thank you for doing this. And, and please, you know, please get the word out. It's like the, the best thing, you know, that, that we can, you know, hope for is to get a lot of people to watch, uh, the season two premiere on air on sci-fi. Um, it's, you know, and they've been great partners and they're really, you know, pushing the, the marketing side of things. So get the word out. You know, we, we are so proud of the show and, and we do think it's something really special. So if we can get people to watch it, um, you know, uh, nothing would make us happier. Yeah. So everyone, that'll be on February 1st on sci-fi. So definitely say, you know, mark your calendars, watch it. I definitely want more seasons of this show. <laughs> so do we. It's, it's, they've got Ty and Daniel, or I think they're contracted to write nine books. And um, and they have a whole story. And you know what? If we get our way, we'll tell the whole thing. Yeah, that's just that's just so exciting. Um, it's fantastic. So, well, thank you very much. This is a real pleasure. Uh, yeah, really thanks. enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks so much. We've been speaking with Narain Shankar. And uh, yeah, so thank you, Narain, so much for joining us. My pleasure. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Narain Shankar for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Shuttle Parts, Zimzam, Amanda Iverson, Paul, Brian, and Jay Boyette, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank Jay Boyette for sponsoring today's show. Remember to check out his new book, The Unkillables, over at jboyette.net. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.